we're not trying to make software developers security experts. We realize they have a lot of other responsibilities. So if we can solve those problems elegantly and efficiently, what we'd like them to do is to opt into our systems versus trying to solve on their own. We'll talk a lot internally sometimes about this idea of cognitive load, right? And, and how much does a developer need to keep in their brain to be able to get ideas into production? And we want to minimize the impact that security has on that. So if you think about traditional security practices, we really wanted to kind of turn that on its head. Hi, I'm Guy Pajarni, CEO and co-founder of Sneak. And you're listening to The Secure Developer, a podcast about security for developers, covering security tools and practices you can and should adopt into your development workflow. It is a part of the Secure Developer community. Check out thesecuredeveloper.com for great talks and content about developer security and to ask questions and share your knowledge. The Secure Developer is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. Welcome back to The Secure Developer, everybody. Today, I've got Jason Chan from Netflix with us. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Jason. Thanks for having me. So, Jason, there's a whole million things I want to ask you and dig into sort of security at Netflix. But before I go too deep, do you want to just give us a quick rundown of you know, what's your background, what's your role today, and maybe what's the journey that got you there? Sure. So I've been in security for about 20 years or so. I started doing defense work for the Space and Naval Warfare Center, Moved from that really into boutique consulting for about the first half of my career. And I would say for the last 10 years or so, I've been really managing security programs. I uh, led the security program at VMware, and now I've been at Netflix for about eight years. Okay. So in VMware, you weren't on the security product side, you were on the kind of keeping VMware secure side. Exactly. We were in the IT organization, so the information security team kind of handled kind of corporate enterprise stuff. Got it. You know, eight years is a long time in Netflix. You know, the organization has changed somewhat. You know, in those eight years, what were your scopes of responsibility, roughly? Sure. Yeah, it has changed quite a bit. I mean, business-wise, you think about it, moving from shipping DVDs to being a streaming provider to now really being a full-fledged entertainment company, creating your own content. I started out relatively early on when Netflix was pushing into the public cloud and AWS, really as an individual contributor to kind of explore the space. Mm -hmm. And from there, you know, as it turns out, you need more than one person to uh, protect the cloud. Sometimes, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> so I just eventually built the team. We really started as a product security function, really working within the engineering team mm -hmm. to try to affect change there. And then over the years, probably about 60% organic growth and about 40% reorganizing of other teams into my org. We've sort of grown to a, an enterprise-wide security team. Got it. How does this sit in the org? Like, is it still a part of the engineering organization? Is it... Our security team is within the product organization, which I guess you could think of as the engineering organization, and I, I report into the chief product officer. Okay, so it's sort of like a peer organization to the engineering team. Yeah, our chief product officer basically runs engineering, so we don't have a CTO or a CIO. So we're, uh, you think of my peers, the other VPs and uh, our other engineering VPs. Yep. Got it. I think when you look at Netflix in general, Netflix has been pioneering a lot of sort of modern practices, you know, around, you know, microservices, chaos and engineering and, and a whole bunch of others. And specifically, you know, there's a lot of statements, you know, I sort of have heard you speak and in general, like, you know, statements from Netflix around modern philosophies, right? Like very intentional approaches to software engineering, including security. So I'd love to, to dig in a little bit around this topic of 
how do you run security in this sort of fast-paced environment and dealing with developers? What would you say, you know, in high level, when you look to engage or work with the product team, with the engineering teams, with your peers, and help you know instill security? What are the core philosophies, core principles that guide you in making decisions in, in your actions? I would say to start with, when you think about some of the things that Netflix is well known for, so things like chaos engineering, a lot of that is our intent is really the same as it always has been, whether you're talking about keeping systems available or secure. The intent is always the same, but how we apply it is fundamentally different. And I think it has to be different because of you know running in the cloud and, and running large-scale distributed engineering teams. So that's kind of like the foundation is that we're, we're still trying to achieve the same objectives, but we realize organizationally and culturally we need to approach it a different way. I think the probably the leading principle or philosophy or whatever you might call it when we're working with our engineering teams is this this idea of we want to think about guardrails instead of gates. Mm-hmm. So if you think about traditional security practices have been you have this idea of a gate, right? Where maybe a project or, yeah. or an application, you, you get to a certain phase and then you need to go talk yeah, to security. Stop for an audit, yeah. yeah, and you might have to get a pen test. So we really wanted to kind of turn that on its head and, and really think about this idea of, of guardrails where we can keep things moving fast, but also keep things staying safe. So we try to infuse that general principle into anything we do, whether it's a tool we're going to build to support developers, whether it's any kind of process or mechanism or workflow, something like that. We're really trying to minimize the situations where somebody has to come ask us to do something. So this sounds you know, much more sort of aligned with moving quickly. I don't know if I'm phrasing it correctly, but I think Netflix values are like freedom and accountability or something of that nature, right? Freedom and... Uh, it's freedom and responsibility. And responsibility. Yes. Yes. You know, how, does that, how does that align? Like, you know, you work with the dev teams, you know, like how much do you give them freedom? Like you gave them the guardrails. How much do you give them that freedom and how much do you sort of hold them responsible? Yeah, it's definitely, there's two sides of that coin. So I would say a general management philosophy for Netflix, and you, you can even, I know our CEO has talked about it publicly, is, is you really want to distribute decision-making as much as you can. So, so me as leading the security team, I want to be making as few decisions as possible. And the best way to facilitate that is to make sure that people have context about what's important to the company, what's important to the team. And the idea being, if you have all the information you need to make good decisions that given maximum freedom, you're likely to come within a range of acceptability for decision-making. And then the responsibility aspect of it is you are free to make your own choices. You're free to pursue your own paths. Sometimes there'll be the wrong choices. And the responsibility element is is you have to be accountable for those things. Mm -hmm. So security-wise, and and I would say generally from an engineering perspective, we want people to be able to make their own choices. But there's a little bit of... I don't know if I would call it like informal peer pressure that kind of keeps things working where mm-hmm. you generally want to align with other teams. If centralized teams are providing a particular service, you generally want to consume that versus building your own just because those are the kind of things. It kind of it helps you be a good citizen of the overall engineering ecosystem. Yeah. To what level does that require security expertise? You know, like, you know, what, uh, what's the threshold there? Generally, what we're trying to do, and you know, maybe we have a slightly different approach to, say, security expertise for developers than some organizations, but my general philosophy is we're not trying to make software developers security experts. 
we realize they have a lot of other responsibilities. They have to build features and products. They have to worry about performance or reliability. Mm -hmm. So we want to make participating in security as easy as possible. So a lot of security tasks are quite difficult, right? They require expertise, whether it's cryptography or things like that. And we don't really want developers who are really trying to focus on some other element, whether it's UI or, or personalization, to be having to worry about those decisions. So if we, if we can solve those problems elegantly and, and sort of performantly and efficiently for them, then what we'd like them to do is to opt into our systems versus trying to solve on their own. Yeah, I guess it's a combination of not reinventing the wheel, so you're working with those systems and uh, ends of use, and maybe sandboxing environment, I guess, is that the way to think about it? Is like you play within the sandbox, then, then you're fine? Yeah, I think that's a good, a good way to kind of talk about like compartmentalization or, or segmentation. And, you know, one of the examples, or I guess an analogy we'll use around self-service is kind of like when you go to a, a grocery store and, and you want to do self-service checkout, it's normally fine, but if you have drugs, or not drugs, but if you have alcohol <laughs> or cigarettes, right, you're going to have to talk to probably a person. Probably drugs as well. He's probably yeah, okay I mean, who stuff, knows? Yeah. Well, some kind of drugs, maybe Sudafed. So the idea is that a lot of things you can do and you can interact with it. And it's not necessarily going to cause that much of a security downside, but we really want to identify that minimum set of things that we feel would be pretty impactful if uh, there was some kind of damage or some kind of error and then figure out the right way to sandbox those, right way to allow the developer to interface with those systems, but in a safer way. Got it. So let's maybe, let's uh, drill down a sec. You know, so now we talk philosophy, probably best way is to just talk about specific practices mm-hmm. that exemplify it. So you know, let's let's chat about a bunch of practices that you have here. You know, can you give us some examples of of some tools that you use or some security processes that you apply to them? Sure. Yeah, I think a good example that kind of follows on that idea of of making security safe to interact with is uh, Lemur, which is a system that we built to allow developers to interface with with PKI with with SSL. Mm-hmm. We all know historically things like you know Open SSL. It's just a it's a difficult thing to use. It's, certificates are not straightforward to request or configure, but they're important. So mm-hmm. really after, I think it was in 2014, after Heartbleed happened, which was the big SSL issue, we built Lemur as a way, we, we knew we wanted to make encrypted communications and SSL more pervasive throughout the environment, mm-hmm. but we didn't want to rely on sort of manual management of those certificates. So Lemur is a way for all of our developers in a really simple and easy way to request certificates, make their certificates get, get automatically renewed, they're monitored. I'm sure we've all had experience in those cases where uh, a certificate expires and all of a sudden something stops working. Indeed, yeah. So we wanted to just make all those problems generally go away, just fade away. Again, kind of try to let the developers focus on what they're actually getting paid for at Netflix and let us worry about the security stuff. And this is Limer, that's the name of the tool that, that's there. And that's an example of something that's entirely out of bounds. Like that system, there should really be there is no freedom for somebody to sort of use their own implementation of OpenSSL. There needs to be some spectacular reason for, or of SSL, there needs to be some spectacular reason for them to do so. Yeah, so Lemur, yes, it's really the standard and it's there. We open sourced that a few years ago. But what we hope to do is, is if we build a tool that's sufficiently capable and simple, there you really have no motivation to sort of go outside of that bound. And we kind of call that concept the paved road, right? It's like you, you could certainly you know, bushwhack and make your way through the woods. But mm-hmm. if you have this nice, smooth, paved road that kind of gets you to your destination, you're likely to opt in there. Now, with freedom and responsibility, we do preserve 
the individual decision making to kind of go off that, but then they become responsible for that. So you could kind of think in the lemur or SSL certificate perspective, a developer, if they didn't want to use lemur, they're going to have to figure out, you know, which certificate authority to use, how to provision those, yeah. how to make sure they don't expire. So they're going to be on the hook for all that. And there's really no reason to do that. Yeah, there needs to be something strong. Okay, cool. So that's the, you know, we're starting from the point of tools that are that are not really offering terribly much choice to the developer. What's an example of a tool that's like maybe closer to the user side of the fence? You know, like I think you mentioned uh, cloud permissions, right? You have some capability there and another tool that you've open sourced? Yeah, we, we built a system called RepoKid and RepoKid works in Amazon Web Services as really a mechanism to evaluate the permissions that an application is using and if they have been provisioned with more permissions than they're using to kind of automatically whittle those away. Mm -hmm. And the philosophy there is we don't really want developers thinking about, you know, what specific permissions do I need in AWS? We want them to be able to use what they need. So if they need a queuing service or storage, they should just be able to use that without worrying how all the mechanics work from a policy mm -hmm. side. So RepoKit just kind of works in the background it will automatically manage and monitor those permissions, take away ones that aren't used. It will, of course, notify. But the goal is to have developers really have no notion of how permissions work in AWS, and everything will just work. And it will, we'll talk a lot internally sometimes about this idea of cognitive load, right? And, and how much does a developer need to keep in their brain to be able to get ideas you know, from their head into production? And we want to minimize that. We want to minimize the impact that security has on that. And we think of RepoKid and similar tools as a way of just taking entire classes of problems that used to be or that have historically been problematic and just just really making them disappear into the background interesting so that's it I think the SSL statement you know wasn't um, controversial at all right in the sense that you know like I know very few developers would have any any aspiration to sort of uh, re-implement their sort of SSL or uh, or even certificate assignment but specifically when it comes to permissions or to kind of managing permissions that's indeed typically or more commonly, you see this as the realm of the application definition. You're saying in this case, it is you're defining it. You're you're getting it down to that least privilege by way of observation. Yeah, I guess you might think of it as automated least privilege, where what we do out of the gate is we will give you what we call the base set of IAM mm -hmm. permissions. And that set of permissions has been created over observing many hundreds and thousands of applications operate in AWS over a number of years. And we generally have a sense of how most applications operate. So if you were at Netflix and you were an engineer and you created a new application, mm -hmm. you would get those set of permissions. And the chances are what you need to do, you already have permissions to do. Uh, you may try to do something that you don't have permissions to do, and we have a pretty simple workflows for you to gain access to those. But then what we do is we'll observe your application over time, and if you have been given permissions that you don't actually need, we'll just kind of shrink those away. And we have a standard change notification process, so we'll we'll let you know, hey, you know, your application is given these permissions that it's not using. We're going to take them away. You have any questions, you know, here's the documentation. Come talk to us either in person or in the Slack channel. But so the default is to take it away. Like there's no they can they can appeal. They get they get some some head notice for it and they can, you know, appeal or sort of prevent yeah, it from happening. I mean, but if they've done nothing, the permission would go away. Yeah, they would it would go away and, and there's really no no basis for appeal. And that's one of the nice things is that if the permission's not being used then there's no real justification to have mm -hmm. it. Now you may run in sometimes a developer will say, Hey, I only use that, you know, maybe once a month or once a quarter. Uh, something like that. So we certainly could provide that. But generally, it's been 
it's been pretty simple. And I think I was I was checking our metrics, you know, a few months back, and we have a really really low rollback rate. So mm-hmm. most of the decisions we make in an automated way have no impact, and they just again it kind of fades into the background. That's that's one of the things that we're trying to do. It's not that we don't like to work with our developers, but when we think about scale, what we're trying to do is figure out the investments that we can make that really potentially takes out entire classes of interactions mm-hmm. that, that you perhaps used to have to have, but now they can just sort of go away through automation. Cool. Let's uh, let's take a step then into the code. You know, like we've kind of we've talked about SSL. That's like arguably a little bit more infrastructure elements of it, and you know, cloud accesses as well. What about the the code itself? You know. Within the application code itself, you've got you know maybe Docker containers, you've got you know vulnerable dependencies, you've got you know vulnerabilities in the code. What are the practices like? How do you tackle those? Kind of getting closer, I guess, to explicit decision making from the developer. Yeah, with specific like code level vulnerabilities, we have a, n- a number of mechanisms that we would plug into, whether they're scanners or other systems that could give us some signal that a vulnerability exists somewhere. And what we try to do, because as you know, um, there's never really a shortage of security tools that will tell you there's something wrong. Indeed. Right? Where what the problem is, is like, okay, well, how do you fix it? Right? Mm-hmm. And then what we try to do is match up the vulnerabilities that we see really commonly. Maybe they surface through a bug bounty or through a penetration test or something like that. And really those, those more difficult problems, and we, we, same thing where we're going to try to solve those for the developer so they don't need to action on their own. I think a good example would be uh, something like secrets management, where secrets management, I think, feels like, wow, that should be a simple and solved problem. But of course, mm-hmm. at scale, when you have thousands of developers and thousands of systems, yeah. it's really quite difficult. So we build that system. We we build the system that that, that kind of handles PKI and things like that to give systems identity that then uh, become the foundation for use cases like secrets management and uh, being able to store encrypted secrets um, in, say, your code repository versus leaving it in plain text. So. But still, sort of drill down into this notion of the uh, of the vulnerabilities in code. So, so you build scanners. You provide those scanners to developers. I guess, kind of two questions. One is, do they have to use it? You know, maybe this comes back to that conformity. And second is, you know, who who handles the results of it? You know. Code scanners are kind of notorious for their false positives. How do you engage there? They are. I mean, we definitely plug into a variety of scanners and other tools that will help you surface vulnerabilities. One of the things that we're investing in is a system that we call internally, we call it Security Brain, which is intended as a way of, of aggregating vulnerabilities for developers so that you're not... The, the old case we used to talk about was you, you'd run a scan and then you'd give like a you know 300-page PDF report to the developer. Indeed, and, yeah. they, and everybody hides it, under the desk. Yeah. Yeah. It hasn't been reviewed. So what we try to do with Security Brain is surface the most important things that we would really want the developer to fix and make it really clear mm-hmm. what those issues are and what the fixes are. And it may link to things like Jira's that we've added. We're trying to think about what is the developer's interface to security issues. And we, we want to minimize the number of places they have to go and how they would actually interact with that. So security brain for us would be, I don't know if it would be, like it's not necessarily a normalization layer, but it's one place that we could surface sort of findings from an arbitrary number of tools into that system so that then the developer has, uh, you could think of it like an application context. So if if you own an application, you could go there when you log in and you'll see all the applications you own with the various issues that we found with each of those. And you can be 
relatively certain that we're not going to come pester you about things that are not surfaced in that. I mean, there, of course, there, there could be, you know, critical things that pop up that we would maybe yeah, engage out of the, band. The response bit, yeah. yeah. But you can kind of think of that as, as the basis for your, your workflow, and you won't need to worry about logging into 15 other systems to find problems. Okay, interesting. So that's all that communication. You know, how do you handle, you know, like containers? Again, you know, Netflix is kind of known for, you know, early adopters, microservices, you know, a lot of those components. How do you handle security of containers and, you know, application dependencies, those things that are in between infrastructure and, uh, and code? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that's a good emerging area that most I think most teams are trying to figure out how to tackle because I think one of the one of the things as you as you move to the cloud or, or as you move to say uh, immutable infrastructure or you know this idea of having golden images or base AMIs or whatever you might call it in your organization really the line between infrastructure and the network and security and applications just kind of go away and I, w- I would say we still have the same philosophy where we're trying to get leverage by building security into the platform versus chasing every single potential variation that folks might have so we have a team you may be aware of a you know we, we have a our container runtime called Titus. And so we work with them pretty closely from a relationship basis to, to build security, the security features we need into the container runtime system. Uh, we work with our team that handles uh, the operating system on our base images uh, pretty closely. But what we're trying to do, similarly, we're not necessarily trying to make them security experts, but what we're trying to do is work with them closely in a close partnership because we know there's high leverage by investing in those things mm-hmm. so that they can build security into what they're providing the rest of the ecosystem. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thanks for the uh, sort of the the tour a little bit about sure. the different problems, and clearly there are even more sort of threats for it. But uh, I love kind of how the indeed the sort of the philosophy holds, I guess, kind of within uh, within those components. How do you handle responses? So, like you know, all of those up until now have been a lot of them have been you know there uh, there are analogies to quality that you might draw. Uh, maybe one of the slightly different is indeed you know incident response. A new vulnerability has been disclosed. It affects, you know, one of your dependencies. Do you get that notice? Does the dev team get the notice? Like, who gets pulled in? Uh, so, if we had, uh, for example, like a product security, yeah, another breach, uh, breach like is a maybe the struts vulnerability, like a, exactly, like yeah. a new struts vulnerability. So we have a centralized response team, and my goal with that team is to really to have them to be able to support different types of incidents. It could be data issues, it could be severe product security issues, it could be a corporate issue. It really doesn't matter. What we want them to bring to the table is things like crisis management skills and communication skills and kind of technical remediation and and leading that. So for a product security incident, so say, for example, you had a, a popular application server that had a serious security vulnerability. Generally, there our AppSec team would take lead on that and working in conjunction with our incident response team, just because they're going to have a bit more context about who may be using that system, and they're more familiar with the system to be able to get that data pretty quickly. So they would be the probably the technical lead on that incident, and they would be doing a lot of the technical execution of the investigation. But what we attempt to do is have pretty good context about the environment, so if you think it from an inventory perspective, so that you could answer relatively quickly, hey, who's using this particular library or service mm-hmm. and who do we need to contact? And we also want to be able to have qualifiers to that, right? So if you're using it and you're edge facing, right, we're going to want to engage with you more quickly than if you're using it on an internal system that's not facing the internet. Okay, so it sounds like in those contexts, the application security team or so the product security is still still a little bit fronting for the development team trying to kind of buffer, I guess, kind of comes back to trying to, you know, keep the noise to a minimum 
for the development team and you'll push them. So the AppSec team might have context about, you know, uh, whatever, if it's a component that is vulnerable, you know, should I worry or not, right? Yes, yeah, we'll generally have the AppSec team make those decisions. And really what we found is one of the great things about the Netflix culture is that people care and they want to do the right thing. So mm-hmm. if they can help with a security issue, they're more than willing. They're going to gonna jump on. Yeah. It, totally. I've never had an issue in eight years of, of any team not being responsive or not taking responsibility for issues. I mean, I, I give them a lot of credit. They, they tend to go above and beyond when there's an, an issue. Yeah. But it is, my understanding is that it's still handled like a little bit differently than, you know, an outage. Like it does imply that the person getting paged you know, when there's an outage versus when there's a vulnerability in the same application, it's not the same person. Uh, it would generally be the same person. Oh, so yeah, it's still the same so, person. So say if you had an application team and they had an on-call, we would just, if we felt it was urgent enough where we need to trigger the on-call, it would be the same person responding, whether it was a, an outage or a security issue. Okay. They may then engage other folks, but they would be the first responder. Got it. And then this, this would be the sort of the central incident response that would have paged them because they said, well, this is like a, a, a sufficiently, they might not have application context, but they know that the vulnerability that's been disclosed is sufficiently severe to, to care. Yep, and that's another thing that we try to do and we talk about cognitive load and how much do we want people to have to worry about is we really designed our incident response processes after our SRE team. So they had already had years of experience, you know, managing outages and working with engineers and bringing the right people in at the mm-hmm. right time. So to me, it would be kind of ridiculous to try to build a capability that was markedly different from that. So we really tried to borrow from that so Mm -hmm. that when people are responding to a security incident, it feels very similar to an outage and that things will work the same way. We'll we'll do the same type of post-incident reviews, the same type of reporting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that makes perfect sense on it. Maybe on the flip side of that, you know, we talked about sort of problems happening. Uh, Do you have anything that you do that is more about like celebrating successes? I mean, if a development team, like as a security team, if, you know, some developer kind of went above and beyond or, you know, did something awesome for security, do you have some some element of that? Maybe sort of a similar question is, is there any notion of like security champions program or things like that? How do you... How do you uh, go the other way around, around identifying leaders and celebrating them within dev? Yeah. We don't have a formal champions program, but I would say it's we have a pretty strong and robust, I was informal program mm-hmm. where just the nature of, of software engineering, you have a lot of folks that have worked on security yeah. and you know, care. products yeah. and they know and um, they tend to be good informal champions for us. We do have a program, like anybody else, we probably don't celebrate enough, but we, we have a program that we call security all-stars and maybe it's a little bit corny or a little bit cheesy <laughs> but we will recognize people if they go above and beyond we give them a little bit of swag you know nothing nothing big i think it's it's always nice to be recognized by your peers and i think it's uh, generally appreciated so uh, i know i promised i'm not going to talk about tools but then i kind of realized that we didn't talk about security monkey and it's oh, the, yeah. uh, you know it's not quite the elephant in the room but it's the uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh can you tell us a little bit like the simian army you know, from Netflix, you know, infamous or famous, I don't know. Sure. What is Security Monkey and what does it do? Yeah. So Security Monkey is, I think, I believe it was the first tool that my team open sourced, I think in 2014-ish or so. So the Simeon Army, at least the way I, I always thought about it, and that goes with things like Janitor Monkey and Chaos Monkey and Chaos Kong, is just that you've always had some sort of technology governance or some sort of patterns and practices that you would follow or that you would adhere to to lead to the outcomes you wanted, right? So like if you think about 15 years ago, how would you handle things like performance or efficiency or reliability, right? It would would tend to be kind of process-oriented. So when we design things like the Simeon Army or Chaos Monkey or, or Security Monkey, 
they were similarly designed to get those same outcomes. Just as we knew we would have to design in a fundamentally different way. So what Security Monkey does is, if you think of that guardrails versus gates principle, is it monitors the environment, but it's not stopping you from doing anything. But it's identifying issues that we believe could be security problems, and they're flagging them for the security team. So it's kind of a passive monitor versus you know, let me throw up a gate in front of you and stop you from doing something. So that's that's how a lot of our security tools work. It's with that idea that you can't prevent everything from happening, but if you build a lot of muscle and a lot of skill around detection and response, that that will allow you to move pretty fast if you have higher confidence that you'll find issues quickly and be able to fix them in production quickly. Mm-hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, like Chaos Monkey is more disruptive than what Security Monkey sounds like. Is there... A chaos security monkey? Like, is there a thing that just gets some over permissions and breaks into a system and sort of sees what it can do through, or, or some aggressive version of a pen, of an ongoing yeah, pen test? Yeah, we, we've experimented with kind of security chaos type things. Um, we do run some, you know, attack simulation tools and things mm-hmm. like that. More red team style. Yeah, red team and some kind of security, like testing automation things. Um, nothing quite like Chaos Monkey, but I, I thought Chaos Monkey is such a fundamentally simple thing, right? It's this idea that what would happen if a monkey got into your data center and just started yeah, unplugging. Plugs, yeah. Because that's a real world way of testing reliability. Because I, I remember early in my career when I would do things like network engineering, you would always have these plans for high availability and everything had to work just right for the failover to actually work. And Mm -hmm. of course, in reality, it never quite happened that way. So with things like Chaos Monkey, it really forced you to poke and prod at all different dimensions of your system and really see how you can respond. Yeah. What do you think is missing? You know, if you had sort of unlimited budget and resources, you know, what... uh what revolution do you think is still sort of missing there? Or I don't know if revolution, but like, you know, key opportunities that lie in like security automation or or the likes. I mean, one of the things that we've invested some in that I would like to continue is this idea, and we've we've had different names for it, but it's just so we have an open source routing gateway called Zool that our, our edge team has built and open sourced many years ago. But it's it's a modular system. So any traffic that comes into the Netflix.com is going through Zool. But it's modular, so you can add arbitrary components to it, whether it's, for example, we we do some uh, rate limiting on it. But you can also add, we've experimented with adding, for example, a web application firewall module to it, and you can add an authentication module to it or a logging module to it. And it's just that idea of having a proxy that takes care of a lot of the security concerns. So that's really where I want to keep pushing is that I want developers to be able to focus on what they're actually hired to do and mm-hmm. worry less and less about security. It's not that I don't want them to care about security. I just thought I want them to focus their nine to five on what they're actually at Netflix to do. So the more and more that we can abstract and the safer we can make it for them, that's really the, I guess, the the kind of flag on top of the mountain that I'm going after. Yeah, oh, interesting. There's something about that statement that actually almost goes back to the perimeter, right? Because you know, it extracts it from where the application is into something outside. And I guess the catch would be, how do you do that in a way that keeps up with the application's complexity? Yeah, it's it's true. It's not an easy problem to solve. But I, I think similarly, you know, in a different way, if you think about like serverless or Lambda as mm-hmm. a way of, if you're just running Lambdas, right, if you're just running functions, there's a bunch of security problems that just don't exist. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean no security problems exist. No, no, it's just a much smaller. Indeed. So those are the. That's the kind of philosophy uh, where we're trying to get to is where there's just fewer things that can go wrong. Yeah. And we have a higher assurance that we that we understand the environment and that we feel comfortable with the controls that exist. Yeah, yeah, indeed. You know, I, I talk a lot about serverless security, and I feel 
you know, a lot of problems indeed. They don't theoretically go away, but they're basically handled by somebody else. In this context, the platform, you know, sort of the cloud platform. So you're saying, well, I want to take another chunk of those components and, and help them for my development team as well. Yeah. And yeah, unfortunately, the attackers was kind of shift their attention into the yes. remaining gaps, you know? <laughs> but, but I think if you compare, so take, take, say, 15 years ago, right, where you were running on-premise, you were running a server, you're running all the network yeah. gear, you're maybe running a virtualization layer, you're running the OS, you're running the middleware, whatever, the application tier. You were responsible for all of that. Yeah. And then you contrast that to Lambda where, yeah, again, you're just minimizing the attack service. Yeah. Right? You're really you're really aggressively managing the, because uh, there's always more stuff to worry about, but you're really being able to control it there. So it's a really, to me, it's a really yeah. neat uh, direction. Yeah, well, and the smaller unit also allows for this privilege and the likes on it. Yep. Maybe kind of one last question before we wrap up. In this sort of very empowered environment that you have you know, within Netflix, what are your thoughts and are you concerned at all about this notion of a malicious or a compromised developer? Malicious, yes. Malicious insider, I think, is definitely something really any security team is, is concerned about. I think we acknowledge that you know, malicious insider is it's a very difficult problem. Mm-hmm. It's if if you think about Snowden or, or any of the I mean these are these are really, really difficult problems to solve when you have a, a knowledgeable malicious inside attacker mm-hmm. that has a lot of rights. We've invested a fair amount into, you know, if you think about identity, we try to make identity as pervasive as possible yeah. and we try to use behavioral analytics to better understand, hey, is this is this a you know developer acting normal or, or any other employee acting normally or is it is there is there potentially some kind of issue there? I would say generally it's one of the largest problems in information security. So I wouldn't say really anybody has it solved, but certainly something that we pay attention to. Yeah, and I do think that you've opened a, a bliss, right? You know, you have the uh, mm-hmm. the SSH access, so zero trust. I guess plays a component to it. That at the very least, I guess if you're unfamiliar with it, listening to this and unfamiliar with this. Uh, Less is like a, an SSH proxy that is more single sign-on based, right? Or sort of more more conscious of who's allowed to access a system at any given time without managing a proliferation of SSH keys. Yeah, it's it's a nice mechanism for managing like SSH CA, so you can have short-lived sessions that are user-specific and endpoint-specific. That really helps. Because we've always thought about you know the bastion host model as a nice way to uh, to choke point access, but there, there's problems with that architecture. So Bless is intended to address some of those limitations. They give you more granularity on authorization, but also from an accountability and auditing perspective. Yeah, and I guess that's one aspect of it because you know at least that you know if somebody did get compromised, they don't have the keys to the kingdom. They have to jump through the system, and then that would be auditable. Uh, just sort of managed in a more reasonable fashion. Yeah, and if if you if you bring it back to you know if you like the kill chain model, right? One of the things that you're always trying to do is you're trying to make the the chain as long as possible, right? So that uh, a number of things have to go wrong in succession and successfully for the um, attacker to be able to to achieve their objectives. So mm-hmm. um, as much as we can do to extend that and and build you know more detections and things like that, that's generally what we want to invest in. Sounds good. This has been great, Jason. Before I totally let you go here, I like asking every guest on the show, you know, if you had one bit of advice or, or pet peeve or something you would like to tell a team looking to level up their security posture, what would that be? I, I believe the real differentiator with any security team from organization to organization is how well 
you understand the company's culture and the company's risk appetite. Because I think the body of knowledge for security is it's it's out there, right? It's it's knowable. Mm-hmm. But what's what you where the real art comes in is how you apply the company's philosophy to on risk and the company's culture, how you shape that body of knowledge to the the problem at hand. And I think many security folks they'll have their bag of tricks or, or they'll have their experience of having done certain things a certain way at, a, at another company or another customer. And it's, so to me, it's really the customization and really investing in, in really understanding what your company wants, what it's comfortable with, how it wants to operate, and being able to flex your security program to fit that. Yeah, no, that's a great advice. Uh, so if somebody wants to you know, tweet at you or such and find you on the internets to ask you more questions, where can they find you? Sure, please come find me on Twitter. It's at ChanJBS, Jason Bryan S. Well, Jason, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And thanks everybody for tuning in and hope you join us for the next one. That's all we have time for today. If you'd like to come on as a guest on this show or get involved in this community, find us at thesecuredeveloper.com or on Twitter at thesecuredev. Visit heavybit.com to find additional episodes, full transcriptions, and other great podcasts. See you next time.